with the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales. My name is Siva Avaru, managing partner of Y Whales Solutions, and we have a fantastic episode for you today. We're going to dive deep into the world of Web3 gaming with fellow Y Whales community member John Welch, CEO of Making Fun. So, John, um, Let's start with a little hook here and a little bit different things for our listeners on the call. What do you view as the next big thing in gaming? I think the next big thing in gaming is fixing the current big thing in gaming, which is free-to-play, right? Free-to-play gaming came from Asia, just completely transformed the gaming industry and, and expanded it incredibly, expanded it in terms of number of players, amount of revenue, and it's incredibly flawed. And I'm really excited by what blockchain technologies bring to give us new tools to solve some of these problems. And then I guess as my teaser, think about how much time game designers spend designing for monetization and how much time players spend seeing ads, game developers spend integrating ad technologies into games. Like, let's fix all that and make it more of a payer and owner economy. Interesting. So yeah, you know, one of the things right now, what we can say from a monetization model perspective for gaming and especially from a free-to-play gaming is really targeting on the advertising. I know every time I'm on my phone and I'm playing a mobile game, those dang ads are just spammed, right? If I want to go and unlock something, there's another ad. If I want to go and engage with another person on my game, there's another ad, right? And right now, from a, a D2C perspective, it's the ad tech revenue um, that is really driving a lot of the gaming ecosystem from a mobile perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to see some of that leak in uh, on some of the consoles as well, right? When you're navigating stores. Um, you, you, uh, you mentioned a, a concept here. Um, in Web3 and in, in especially around um, tokenization, we have the concept of digital assets and ownership economy. Could you expand a little bit more on that and what you mean by uh, that being a pretty revolutionary part here for gaming? Yeah, so in gaming today, you don't really own any of the assets in the game. But, but it's not just that obvious sort of first level interpretation of that, right? It doesn't mean like tomorrow you're going to own your sword and be able to use it in any game. Of course not. That's silly. However, what happens when game designers now, rather than designing to prevent you from transferring an object from one person to another, selling something, they're designing to make that fun and a, a constructive part of the economy and of the player experience. So I think that everything you've seen to date has been essentially an experiment in Web3. And really what's happening now is real game designers, real game developers are getting in. And I, I think you, you haven't seen anything yet. Dude, I think you just hit something there. I remember back when I was in college and I wasn't big into Guild Wars. My roommate was huge into Guild Wars. And that, that kid, you know, my friend, <laughs> spent hours, I mean, not hours, I mean, probably cumulative years within the game. And this was before the concept of, you know, owning in-game assets. And marketplaces were a native capability of those games. And what he did actually was pretty ingenious. He would build up these characters 
And, you know, this is before, you know, like Diablo and all these games started building in-game, you know, on modern uh, 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 platforms, you know, having uh, with the peer-to-peer sharing and and selling of their in-game assets, he would go and literally, you know, accumulate these rare swords, these rare skins, these rare objects for his characters. He would post a picture of the object on eBay, and then he would tell the, you know, if someone bought the digital picture on eBay, he would meet up with them in game and actually swap, you know. And what did that require? That required trust and reputation, which were incredibly flawed in those days. How many people lost money on scams there? Oh, and then the Web3 promises to make that trust trustless, permissionless. He got scammed. He got scammed. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, you know, in college, you know, he was making a killing because he was devoting all these hours, and uh, in turn, he was making actual real money. Yeah, that's very that's that's very interesting. So, digital assets today, you know, that's a big concept, especially when yeah. we start thinking about the evolution in Web three and especially gaming. And we're starting to see some of those concepts toyed around here, you know, with like League of Legends and Fortnite and what have you. Where do you see digital assets becoming kind of part of that ownership economy for consumers and, and gamers? You know, thinking about the sweat equity that a lot of gamers are pouring into their video games. And they eventually want to extract something out of that. And digital assets is a conduit to that. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think, first of all, from the developer perspective, if I can offer my players the ability to to own something and to maybe recapture some of the value of the money they've spent and the time they've spent, maybe they're willing to spend more time and money into the game, right? So it could be, I think, a positive feedback loop. And I think one of the flaws we saw in early Web3 gaming was this notion that somehow time directly became money, right? So an Axie, you could somehow become a scholar and get somebody else's Axies and play with them and invest your time growing the value in the game that you could then cash out as money. And that was just a house of cards and it fell down. But that was an early experiment. And I think they just got the equation wrong. The equation that we believe in at Making Fun is time plus money equals fun plus retained value, right? So you still have to spend some money, but when you spend your time and you spend your money in an experience, you can build some value there. And maybe you can extract 10% of what you put in, 100%, 300%. I don't know. Maybe that depends on how skillful you are, right? If you take an asset and it develops reputation and not only utility, but reputation, Somebody might want to own that asset, and it might be worth more than what you paid for it. Um, but I think to, to think that you're going to make speculative kinds of returns, um, whether by owning a token or an NFT, I, I think uh, that that I think is is stuff that we won't see continue very much into the future. But 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 what you can count on is when you give these amazing tools and technologies to game designers, you will see magical new things that we can't we can only dream about right now. Well, and I don't even really want to know what the SEC thinks about these things the minute they exit a closed ecosystem and yeah. you know potentially considered as securities, yeah. right? Well, but isn't that that's important, right? So for us, I don't care about like I'm not here trying to create games so that people can subvert laws or or tax laws or tax obligations. In fact, that's one of the big problems with Web three today. We don't have a convenient way for someone to say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a fine upstanding citizen. If I put my hundred dollars in and take a thousand dollars out." I want to report that $900 gain and pay taxes on it, right? We have laws around that for casinos. You walk into a casino, 
the average person maybe doesn't have to worry about anything. But if you're if you're a big winner, you're going to pay taxes on that win. It's all legal. It's all controlled. But it's also made super convenient for the player. Right. And we haven't gotten any of that right yet. There's literally no way for me as a game developer to offer a person to come into my game, spend money, have it tracked, cash out and get a tax form. In, in, in fact, a lot of what we're waiting to do at Making Fun is we're waiting for that partner to provide that kind of functionality. And then, and then I think you see it explode when it's easy, when it's convenient, when it's fun. Any, anyone listening, if you're a partner that can develop that capability, hit up John right here. Well, that, that's very interesting. And, and you know, you, you made an interesting point, and I kind of want to maybe double click into that, John, is that I think, you know, from a Web3 gaming perspective, and hey, most Web3 builders right now that are building actual companies and actually building something of substance, you know, the, the psychographic or the demographic of that individual is someone either like yourself or myself, a millennial to, you know, maybe a younger boomer or a late millennial, so to speak. But really where the customer and consumer attention right now is that Gen Z and Alpha, Gen Alpha, right? The, the younger demographics. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of gaming yeah. built for the people that are you and me, but that's not where the purchasing power is or that's not where the attention is, right? Well, I, I think that's one of the maybe misperceptions is that everybody's a gamer today. Look, when I started Play First back in 2004, I had to convince venture capitalists that literally half the world's population, they were gamers too. The, the common knowledge back in 2004 is that only boys played games, not men, not women, not girls, only boys. And partially that was reinforced by the fact that people only made games for boys, right? So I think what you've seen change and, and what my previous company play first, we, we were, we played a big role in that with our game Diner Dash that was played by hundreds of millions of people is we started making games with empowered female characters that really drew in more women. And then games that came afterwards, like Candy Crush, literally used some of the devices that we created um, to to provide this red carpet experience for people, to give them their visual barometers of progress as they go through an experience with stars telling you how you did on levels and this map and this path that you go on, right? So there's been a big evolution in the industry, but where we sit in 2023 is everybody's a gamer. You may play crappy games, just like back in 2004, when I talked to people and they said, oh, well, women don't play games. I don't play games. I'm a woman. I don't play a game. Like, well, when was the last time you played Solitaire? Oh, I play solitaire every day. Well, yeah, you're a gamer. You just play bad games. And so now there's games for everyone. Everyone's a gamer. But Web3, not so much, right? In fact, Web3, the games have been pretty crappy. And that's not to say, that's not a meaning to disparage anyone. It's like it's a new platform. When, when one or two people make a game, it can't compete with a team of 20 or 50 industry veterans, right? So I think what you're seeing today is the first or second inning of Web3 gaming. And what's in development now are some really impressive things by really well, impressive I, teams. I, I can only imagine when the Activisions of the world enter the space, right? Oh, they're going to be the laggards, right, though? Because what it is, though, it's the people that used to work at Activision. Like, so our lead graphics programmer at Making Fun was previously a programmer at Blizzard, right? He was a key person doing graphics programming at Blizzard. He left Blizzard did his own thing, missed being on a, a great game development team, and now he's he's on board with us doing amazing work. And so I think it's still going to be the startups that innovate. Let's be clear. 
but it, it sounds like you've been around the block here. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned two VC funding in 2004. So, yeah. I mean, how, how did you, how did you get started? What got you into gaming? How did you get into gaming? Sure. Well, so I, I kind of grew up like a lot of people. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite a boomer. I'm a Gen Xer, but uh, my parents were boomers and uh, they gave me some really interesting advice. They, they were pretty amazing in every way, but they got two things, two things completely wrong. You know, seeing me playing my Atari 2600 and 5200, they were convinced that video games would only rot my brain, right? So I remember my mom came home with groceries one day and wanted me to help her take the groceries in, and I was about to flip asteroids. And you, and you couldn't save back then. You couldn't pause. Like You were there until you got your high score and you took a picture of the screen, right? And I really wanted to flip the thing. And uh, and so that was, that was funny. But then the other piece of uh, feedback they gave me was, when I wanted to buy a computer, they made me pay half with my lawn mowing and, and shoveling, you know, snow shoveling money. And what computer was that? It was a leading edge Model D. It was, I think, 1986. Oh, so that wasn't my first one. My very first one was a TI-99 4A that you plugged into your color television set. It was, yeah. it was vastly less powerful than today's calculators. <laughs> um, you know, the, the storage medium was like literally a, a cassette tape deck like a little it looked like a cassette recorder from back then but you probably can't even find in a history museum today but um but they told me that that computer would only gather dust in the corner uh be another one of those toys i never use of course what happens i grow up and i end up making video games for computers for a living so uh but they got everything else right so okay so i grew up a gamer and kind of a typical gamer from that day from you know the 80s playing uh playing games on my atari and then uh, went to school, got degrees in math and computer science. And, uh, and I got into gaming actually by chance, into actually making games. Uh, I was running a startup with my roommate from Boston. We moved out to California looking for internet and looking to make our, you know, kind of uh, go into the, the hills and find our gold, uh, but on the internet. And uh, we created a company and we were working on a, uh, an enterprise software product that was, that was really cool. And we were talking to a guy at Sega about joining our, our startup. And he said, okay, well, that sounds really cool. I, I'd love to work with you guys. But while you're trying to raise money from venture capitalists, why don't you come over and work at Sega? We've got some exciting things going on and, and we'll work together here. And then we'll, we'll all leave together and go, and go there. We ended up just getting sucked into Sega and staying there for a couple of years and building first, the, the, I guess, the final iteration of Heat.net, which was their multiplayer gaming network. Um, back in the, I guess this was 1988, 1998, I'm sorry. In 98, if you wanted to play a multiplayer game, you probably were doing it on either Heat.net or Mplayer, um, which were two, two sites where you could, you could connect and play Quake with other people. Um, I never got into first-person shooters because we sat at, uh, I guess it's the, what's now the Zynga building over on 8th and Townsend in San Francisco. The servers were in our basement, so the lag for people in the office playing Quake was something like one millisecond. Oh, and the guys got good. So I show yeah. up, you know, a couple of years later into the development of this stuff, and uh, I jump into the game. I'm like, "Woo! I'm going to play Quake," and I'm I'm dead already. <laughs> I, I just I've been here for a second, and I'm already dead. So I just first person shooters are not for me. But uh, but we did some cool work at Sega, and ultimately the point there we. Um, we started developing the Dreamcast network, which was going to be the first multiplayer gaming network in the US, uh, much like essentially what Xbox Live is today, right? Microsoft in some ways had better timing and, and better, better corporate structure, let's say, than Sega back then. 
Uh, Sega was a bit of a mess back then. One cool story from when I was at Sega that I think I'd love to share because it it, it frames my entire career in video gaming. Um, I was invited. This is funny. I was I was sitting at my desk on maybe a Thursday, and my boss at the time was was uh, Shiratsuchi-san, and he comes to my desk and he says he was from to- Tokyo. He was sent from Tokyo to run SegaSoft. So SegaSoft is this little dinky startup that reported to the chairman of the board of CSK Corporation, which owns Sega. And um, and this will become apparent why this is important shortly. And Shiratsuchi says to me, John, I've got good news and bad news. The good news, you've been invited to Okawa-san's house. The bad news, it is tomorrow and you cannot say no. Well, <laughs> he knew tomorrow in a very, we would look back and say, now it's inappropriate kind of thing to have done as a manager. My entire team was lined up to help me move into my new house with my with my fiance at the time. And um, and we were going to, um, to, I guess was it? Yeah, I wasn't married yet. So we were just engaged and we were moving into our new house and my team was going to help me literally move all my stuff. And um, and instead, I was going to have to go to the chairman of the board's house because I had been summoned and he had bought a place. He had bought the Silverado Country Club up in Napa because he liked the house. And so, okay, so we the next day, my team moves us into our new house. All my stuff's there. The pizza comes. I'm like, okay, guys, there's the pizza. There's some beer here. I'm off to Napa to meet with Okawa-san. And so this is this was a really special night for me. I was you know I was young and I had never seen that kind of extravagance before. Um, and this is even before we we got to drive the Ferrari around Napa. And so we're having dinner, and after dinner, we sit down at the piano bar overlooking the entire Rutherford bench in Napa. It's a beautiful place. And he says to me, and it took Okawa-san a long time to get this out in very broken English. Right? English was not a, a strong language for him. And he said to me, I lost a lot of family and friends in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And my dream is to unite the children of the world through multiplayer gaming so there will be no more war. And, and like, I'm looking at him from about two feet away as he's telling me this, looking me in the eyes. And that's, it was profound. Like I still kind of shiver when I think about that idea that's powerful i mean and and i think it's true right there are a lot of bad things with globalization but one of the great things is as you interact with people from different cultures and places maybe you're a lot less likely to want to go to war with them and that was his point and unfortunately he was you know kind of at the end of his his time he he died a few years later um and sega then fell apart and was sold off to sammy who was a pachinko maker in Japan, right? So Sega today is nothing like what Sega used to be back in the in the hardware days um, when we had consoles. But that sentiment has just driven me through my entire career. And then so in subsequent jobs, when I hear from people who have, who have um, challenges, physical challenges, and can't, for example, a grandmother that couldn't play with a physical puzzle with her grandchild, but she could put the grandchild on her lap and use the mouse to play a jigsaw puzzle that we offered at Shockwave. And she wrote, they wrote to us and said, you know, God bless you. Thank you so much for what you've given us. I can now play with my granddaughter in a way that I, I just would have no hope to do. So this, so video games, like they get a lot of heat, but video games can be amazing powers for good also. So it's so like, I guess oh, yeah. some of where my passion comes from with video games, it's from stories like that, that, that drive me. Well, and, and stories like that just 
really amplify the power of, you know, peer-to-peer collaboration, you know, immersiveness, you know, with different, I mean, that story resonates very personally with me. Um, in college, uh, you know, I have different states with my different friends from my hometown and the way that we stayed, stayed in contact, you know, usually, and you know, when you think about the evolution of your personal and social circles throughout your life, you know, it's usually dictated by who's in close proximity to you. And the beauty of the internet and especially video games um, in the late 2000s was the explosion of multiplayer uh, online experiences. For me, that was not Xbox Live, that was PlayStation, uh, specifically PS2, PS3. And in uh, college, you know, the way I stayed connected with my hometown friends, even though we were in different states, was we were clanned up in Call of Duty and in StarCraft II. Uh, and as we know, StarCraft II is a StarCraft is a is a, a, a national sport, you know, in Korea. And when StarCraft II was released, it just caught a lot of wind. But you know, now you're you're I, I'm, I'm meeting people that I would never meet in real life. I'm talking, you know, on chats, and I'm talking, you know, via auditory experiences, and you know, we're strategizing, we're getting to know each other, and I'm forming these deep relationships with individuals that I would never have the opportunity to have uh, in real life, just mainly because of a physical limitation like proximity, distance, location, what have you, right? And so that's really, really awesome. Someone like um, uh, your former boss. Uh, who had that vision, but it's it's sad that he didn't get to see the power of it uh, in execution to where it is today, right? Because there are, when I think of millennials like myself, or when I think of uh, Gen Zs, the generation after us, it's very common now for some of us to our closest friends are usually people that we might have not ever met in real life. I yeah. have a group of guys that I've been friends with for over a decade, who the, for the first time we met uh, was about a couple of years ago, and we had been internet friends. And that was such a foreign concept back in the early 2000s, right? And it's just yep. crazy to understand how that, how, how, how rapidly evolving just social dynamics has changed, all because video games were a conduit to allow that, right? Yes. That's, I mean, man, that, the way, that, we, that is the way awesome we work stuff. now, right? We've got several people at my company that I've never met in person, and we're, we're on video all the time. Creating games. So, oh, same with Wild I mean, Wild is a globally distributed, you know, uh, enterprise, right. and there are team members that I have not met. Right. Um, so it's it's just the way the world is going. So, man, I mean, that, that, that's an awesome. You know, I think that's different than what you're seeing from a. It's a different perspective from what you're seeing with a lot of Web three and even you know some of the newer Web two games slash executives is they don't have kind of that that what I would say quote unquote, war history. Uh, and it's not a war history in a traditional sense, but you've seen the industry evolve from oh, yeah. base conceptualization, the 80s, right? Asteroid games, right? I mean, I remember where I would play Crash Bandicoot on PS1 and I there, I didn't even have a memory card. Uh, so I would just leave the game on pause and tell my parents not to touch the TV, right? And then yeah. the memory card was the greatest thing to ever be uh, uh, implemented, right? And then you had Game Boys, right, where you could actually save your games. And then you had PlayStation 2 and Xbox 360, where you could then do cloud back, you know, hard drive backups of your games. And now it's all stored on the cloud. I mean, I mean, it's just crazy to see how much of that has evolved. And you had a driver's seat to that. Yeah. Um, and and as those things have progressed, you've had less and less ownership over your assets. And now with Web3, 
it's the opportunity to start bringing ownership back into the equation. When the technology allowed these video game makers to centralize the content and the assets to where they had more opportunities to monetize off of your attention, right? Yeah. And that's 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 the whole kind of where we see a big deviation of what Web3 needs to change from Web2. But man, I mean, you fulfilled what I would say a lot of young boys' dreams. You you went from being an avid video gamer to at that time, Sega was one of the top platforms. Sega yeah. Dreamcast was one of the top platforms, right? The biggest competitor to that at the time, I would say, was Nintendo. Um, I don't think uh, PlayStation at that time, PlayStation had just been birthed, PS1. Um, I don't think it was a major competitor at that time. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but... Yeah, I think that it's interesting. Dreamca- the Dreamcast was... Oh, man, I could talk for hours about Sega and the Dreamcast. It was it was a good box. It had some great games. It had a lot of flaws in the way the company worked or did not work together. There were actually multiple entities. So what a lot of people don't realize, you had Sega of Japan, who had ultimately who created that hardware. You had Sega of America, who had competing hardware that ended up losing and not getting shipped. You had Segasoft Networks, which was us, the network company that was doing the, the Dreamcast network. And the entities did not get along really well. They were competing with each other. And, you know, I went to Tokyo to, uh, with the, the mission of getting source code for the Sega Rally uh, driving game because we were making a gaming network. We weren't making games. We wanted other people's games. So we, we tried to get the source code and they wouldn't give it to us. Yeah. So we went to Tokyo to ask them for it. And they did something most Japanese teams don't do. They just said, no, like what? They just said, no, we're not giving it to you. Like what? We're the same company. We're going to, we, we're going to make your amazing game. The first multiplayer game in the U S What were they afraid of? Was, was it? It, The company was dysfunctional. Right. So then Okawa steps in, of course, because he wants to unite the children of the world through multiplayer gaming and he believes in what we're doing. And he says, give him the source code. So you should imagine what the source code looked like when we got it. It looked like they ran it through an obfuscator. So we ended up having to hire a couple of guys to, to create essentially our own multiplayer game that was really a demo game just so we could create the SDK around it and the ISP relationships and, and all this stuff. So we would have something to actually play. And then, you know, something we could give away to other game developers so they could use in making their games. That's it, interesting. it was a mess, but yeah, so like I, <laughs> I could I mean, talk for, like I said, I could talk for a long time about is, Sega, but. That problem is resonant of how business operating models were structured in the 90s yeah. and early 2000s, right? You had these enterprises and these holdings, these portfolio companies that own multiple business units and every business unit was treated like its own silo, right? Yeah. And Yep. Well, and I would say the big takeaway I had from Sega, one of the big ones is, so when I got to Sega, um, PlayStation 1 was actually around before the Dreamcast, right? So I decided, you know, when I, I came into the video games industry and having no experience, I said, okay, well, how did this consumer electronics company, Sony, go from not a player in video games to being the dominant platform in one, one generation, right? And the answer is very simple, developer support. And so that simple phrase, if you think about it, every single platform, there's only one exception. There's only one exception to what platform succeeded despite the fact that they had horrible developer support. Any guesses? One platform that exceeded even though- That succeeded despite how bad it was to developers. The answer is Apple and the iPhone. 
yeah, yeah, I mean, those are, closed, those are closed ecosystem with their own yeah. hardware. But you think about Nintendo. When Nintendo goes in waves, right? So Nintendo occasionally treats developers really, really well when they need them. That was my and initial new platform reaction. coming out. Miyamoto's going to do something special. We're not going to tell the rest of the world what the hardware looks like, what the software looks like, so we can come out and amaze everyone. But they'll go in cycles. Nintendo will occasionally be really developer-friendly. Sony has built themselves on being friendly to developers. Microsoft has become probably the most friendly. I just signed an NDA with Microsoft, and I couldn't believe it. It looked like I wrote it. I'm like, wow, this is a really friendly document. This is fantastic. What a great company. So like these companies, if you want to be successful as a video game platform, you need to treat your developers really well. Apple's the, the big exception of that. Mm. I mean, they, they're just, that's just where you have economies of scale and you're just such a behemoth that, you know, everyone is going to come to you, right? So, I, you know, but that's been, but, but when, develop, when platforms think that, it doesn't always that's go when well. a disruptor. That's an opportunity for a disruptor, right? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the government had to step in. Apple got yeah. so bad with the developers that now the governments of the world are stepping in to regulate them, which is horrible. I don't really want that either. But a 30%, so, okay, the 30% tax that Apple charges on developers made a lot of sense back in 2009 when they created this new experience, they created this new capability. And, and you got free distribution. You got free eyeballs. You put your app up, people would download it and spend money, and you'd get 70% of it. Downloading. That was an amazing deal. Yeah. yeah. But fast forward now, you get absolutely no distribution for free. You have to spend a ton of money. So we talked about advertising briefly. You know, that that if you think about how much money gets pulled out of the video games market by advertising platforms and by platforms like Apple, it's substantial. And it's very difficult to make a a viable business in this platform in this industry now, right? Um, so, so I think you know again back to blockchain and what I'm so excited about is like what can we do to capture the value and to formalize the value offered? Take take streamers, take marketing for an example. Rather than buying ads, what if you could give a streamer a long tail piece of the revenue for the audience they bring and the value they bring and the incremental value they bring. You could calculate this all. Oh, but how would you ever do the accounting on that? Well, you know what? Put it on the blockchain. It's transparent. You can write software for that. Right. So yeah, that's, that's, I mean, if you take your concept, uh, you know, what we were just talking about a little bit earlier where, um, it's video game platforms that are the most developer friendly, you know, just caught major headwinds. Now, what we have as an opportunity, especially potentially for Web3 uh, companies, especially is doubling down on the streamer uh, and the influencer community and the gaming influencer. You know, that was not a concept 10, 20 years That's ago. Right. That's right. But now you have major um, individuals, you know, let's say myself, for example, I'm a streamer on Twitch and I've got 1.5 million followers and I'm getting all this daily engagement and I'm putting substantial sweat equity and I'm driving a lot of eyeballs and a lot of revenue and a lot of ad revenue to the platforms I'm hosted on and also to the to the uh, video games that I'm actually playing and, and the platforms I'm playing on. But now I have an opportunity to convert that sweat equity into my own monetization where I benefit from that self. Right. And, it's and you have that today, but it's based on right. advertising, right? So you're getting a thin, thin, thin slice of dollars that get spent around your activity. What if you could just have a direct slice? So how is making fun kind of tackling this? Well, we're not. So we're, we're a game maker, right? So we need other players in the ecosystem to do their jobs. We need people to supply the tax, the legal tax infrastructure to being able to make money. So the models we like, let's be clear, for we, we're not into sort of the 
lot of the models that were used in early Web3 gaming, the Ponzi schemes, the rug pulls, the House of Cards, the, the bad games that nobody really wants to play. However, there are models that do make a ton of sense. How about rather than play to earn, win to earn? How about when you spend five or $10 a month for a battle pass, some amount of that money goes into a pot that you can take a piece of as a player based on your performance in the game during that season, right? What if we put, to start it off, a dollar in? We'll just take a dollar out of our pockets, but for every $5 we get, and we'll put it into this, into this kitty, and you'll get your, your share of that. And then maybe as that starts to take hold and people say, this is kind of a cool thing, maybe you have the opportunity to throw in an extra $5, and 95% of that money goes into the, into the kitty. And now all of a sudden you've got people who are betting on themselves, betting, I don't know, earning, playing, skill-based gaming. It's um so what what's preventing, you know, let's say let's let's talk about a theoretical, let's let's do a live kind of strategy session here. Sure. What's what what's preventing, you know, the top 5 League of Legends streamers and players with the largest audience to band together? And say, hey, we've got this captive audiences. We drive a lot of revenue to the, to this platform and to the the, the uh, omni-channel platforms that we are supporting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why don't we band together? Let's create a community pot of all of us, and and you know, we will get that funded, and we will incentivize that and gamify that to the point where it's beneficial for us all. Where we get to the point where um, the makers and the platforms are coming to us. We are no longer having to live and breathe on these platforms, but now people are wanting our attention. Kind of similar yeah. to like the celebrity, the the entertainment industry today, right? You know, uh video or uh, not video, um uh, movie executives and and TV executives go and specifically search for certain actors because of the uh the power of magnitude that they can bring to their own entertainment content, right? And that's a very powerful mechanism especially when you think about a pilot for a TV show or the success of a trilogy of a, of a movie, it is all hinged around certain characters and certain actors. What, what, what's preventing modern video game streamers who arguably have platforms as rich of that of those of, of entertainment stars with a different audience and with a different demographic to get together and do that? And well, I don't think anything's preventing them today, but what we're not doing is we're not making it we're not aligning the stars and moons and planets in a way that makes gaming better, right? So they're, they're, streamers are doing their thing. They're making money. I mean, there's some people making seven digits of, of salary a year doing exactly what you're saying, right? But what happens when we can take advertising out of this, when we can take platform fees out of this, and we allow the streamers and the esports players to play the games they want to play? And some of it may be the, the established games like League of Legends, but then also, they might also select other games because where are you going to get a better return if you can literally be rewarded for your contribution and building audience on a long tail? Are you going to be better off maintaining the League of Legends community or helping a new community to grow that you can then create a, a revenue stream that's disproportionately favorable to you? And so that's what I think what gets me excited is where you take these people who are influencers I think you can take influence to a whole new level when they're really helping to discover games, not because they're being paid to do it in sort of a transactional way, like advertising type of way, or I'm going to give you $100,000 to play my game on your stream, but rather you help me build my audience because my game is truly good because you believe in that game, because you truly love that game. 
and you're going to make a lot of money for the next 10 years. And you're not going to have to trust me because it's all going to be on the blockchain and you can just inspect it. Man, I love that. The minute it's on chain and you can token gate experiences and access and you can um, you know, you can incentivize different market makers on that. You can, uh, you know, audience experiences, and it's all immutable and it's all, yeah. you know, transparent. I mean, that's just. I mean, it, it it takes it takes someone to kind of push the envelope there. You know, maybe in modern gaming communities, that's that's someone of like a phase clan, for example, or something of that nature. That um, they basically operate as a business. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there's so many new. So many new players in this space, right? So I, I like one of the groups I follow is Capital Dial. What they're doing with 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 guilds, um, it, it's it's just such early days. And so from the making fun perspective, what are we doing in Web three? First and foremost, we're building great games. So our company is in this like really weird place where we've been around since two thousand nine. We sold the company to News Corp, grew it in Rupert Murdoch's That's empire. News Corp is you know Rupert Murdoch. Well, I mean, he wanted to build a game publishing business and uh, someone I knew from Sega went over and got himself hired there to do that and then said, okay, I need a team and I need some tech. So he called us up and he acquired Making Fun. So we were inside of News Corp for a couple of years. And then um, News Corp kind of went through a lot of changes and ended up dismantling digital media as a, as a business unit. And so I had the opportunity to buy the company back in 2013, which I did. So we've been indie since 2013. And um, and we built a game called Eternium, which is our big game. So, so what Making Fun is most known for today is Eternium. It's had 37 million downloads. It's not only one of the best games on mobile platforms, it's one of the best apps. From a ratings perspective, it's something like 4.85 stars on the app stores, Google and, and Apple. Um, we also launch on Steam, so it looks great on a 30-inch monitor. Problem is... We were really clever and we chose the best technology for making a high performance 3D action game 10 years ago. It was called Marmalade and you've never heard of it. It was a really thin layer uh, on top of OpenGL where you could create, it was really more of an SDK than a game engine, oh. like a modern game engine, like you think Unity, Unreal. Yeah. Unity, you don't think Marmalade, right? So the company went out of business five or so years ago. My little, my little company, we had to acquire a source code license to Marmalade just so we could keep the game live. Like Apple, you know, every year says, okay, we've got new SDK level. You have to get up to this level or you can't release on the app store. Google, same thing. And so if you can't keep up with those SDK changes, you, you literally, your, your app dies. And so we have to maintain a, a, a graphics engine as well as a game. And so that became kind of catastrophically bad for my company. Um, about a year and a half ago, we essentially stopped development on Eternium and started. And so Eternium was developed, I should say, by a, a really close partner studio to making fun called Dream Primer over in, in Romania. And so about a year and a half ago, they just stopped development on Eternium. And, um, and that was bad. That caused the revenue to kind of go down. Uh, Russia was also 6% of our revenue. We have a lot of players in Russia. And oh, wow. they got just shut off. So no money flows from Russia for any of our games anymore, um, you know, when the, when the government kind of stepped in there. And so, um, so some things that, you know, happened there. And so our company now, we're kind of in this rebirth moment where, well, a year and a half ago, they stopped development because they started development on the next generation title. And so first it was a multi, it was a massively multiplayer and MMORPG. 
And then we shifted from that to something a little closer to what Eternium is. Uh, and so it was first project Arcana. And we just realized that was too epic scope for a small team to do. And then we shifted towards a, an action RPG again, like Eternium, currently called Project Artemis. And Artemis, we hit first playable about three or four weeks ago. The game's going to be super fun. It's super high-end, Unreal Engine, multiplayer from the start. You're going to see it on a console someday, uh, but you're going to see it on a mobile phone first. Um, well, so maybe, maybe so that's, we'll that's half of what our company focuses on. So at Making Fun, we're, we're the publisher of that game as a partner to Dream Primer. And then Eternium, which Dream Primer created, we took in-house to our development studio, and we're both maintaining the live version. So we've actually started doing updates again, small features, bug fixes. People are really happy to see that. And um, and then we've started, but you know, just because we're doing a next generation Eternium on Unreal Engine, well, what about Eternium? So we also started porting Eternium over to Unity. And so mm. Unity is the, the dominant game engine platform for mobile games. Uh, so today, if you want to do a high-performance 3D action game, you would use Unity. Um, you know, maybe Unreal, but Unreal is definitely more suited for consoles and PCs. So, so I think what Epic is excited about in talking with us about Artemis is that, you know, like for, you know, Fortnite runs at something like 15 frames a second on a mobile phone. So we're going to be squeezing out as much performance as we can with Artemis on mobile phones, doing some really cool things with multiplayer there. And we've got the original Eternium coming to a modern game engine with Unity. So that's kind of the future of our company now. We've got these two action RPGs in development. So what does all this have to do with blockchain? Well, the way we're going to fix free-to-play gaming by using blockchain is not by having crappy games or DeFi schemes. We're going to have amazing, awesome next-generation games that empower players and owners and streamers through ownership on chain through maybe not floating value tokens, but what about fixed value tokens that I can get a tax form when I have earnings? What about NFTs that give me permissionless ownership and ability to transfer and sell my assets that gain reputation? All of these things. But it requires great games. Yeah. 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 So why do we think we have a good chance of being successful? Because we have 37 million downloads of Eternium. It's one of the highest rated apps ever to be on a mobile phone. We've got seven and a half million people who are email subscribers who get updates when we have something to say about Eternium. So we can't wait to start, you know, and I don't know how we're going to talk about this. Look, Reddit put out their NFTs and they didn't call them NFTs. So we still need to evolve the language and figure out how we talk to normal people about owning things and what they can do. But it'll be more based on what you can do, the utility. And And you shouldn't have to explain it. Right? The reason gaming exploded to be such a mass market phenomenon is because developers like Play First back in the day, you know, and now making fun and, and now Candy Crush, and you see all these different these different games, they made it easy for people. It just made sense. It was intuitive. I'm gonna make right? it easy for people. Make There's it no easy, make it fun. Oh, spend a little money. Okay, it's cheaper than a latte. Right. 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 Not like attach your crypto wallet and buy the okay. Some of the smartest people I know have been scammed with crypto scams. One person lost a $15,000 NFT. Another one lost another deed. Like, <laughs> these are, one of them is a venture capitalist and one of them is one of the smartest game designers I know. Okay? This stuff is complicated. Well, man, that's, that, that's awesome. Uh, you know, one of, one of, one, I'm sitting here listening to you and one of the things that I advise a lot of uh, C, CXOs, a lot of Fortune 500 enterprises, is especially when they're thinking about Web3, 
to be just like you would uh, in terms of assessing your own technology stack, your own enterprise stack from a, a, a Web2 perspective to not uh, to always enter the space with some sort of agnosticism, to always be technology agnostic when you're looking to build a core infrastructure of what you're building your company on. It sounds like a big learning uh, or hopefully a big learning from yourself with Marmalade and Eternium and Making Fun 1.0 uh, was that if you double down on a specific core piece of technology and it eventually gets deprecated, uh, your entire operating model kind of, you know, get sucked in down the drain, uh, being tied to that specific piece of technology. So how are you changing? How, how is making fun changing into making fun 2.0 uh, into what is making fun today? And kind of where are you, uh, where are you progressing towards? And what are your immediate, uh, you know, next set of business outcomes or business goals? Yeah, you know, good, good question. Um, you know, you, you can't help but choose a technology or a set of technologies to do something, right? You have to, you have to pick your tools. Um, but you also want to make sure you're, you're, you're isolating your risks, right? And so um, at the time, I think we made the right, well, we, if I could go back in time, I would say, yeah, we should have used Unity. But on the other hand, maybe part of what was the magic with Eternium was that we did get such high performance the day. I mean, that game really stood out. You know, Diablo didn't show up on a mobile phone until last summer, right? And so Eternium was the dominant action RPG, the the genre-defining action RPG on mobile because we did such a high-performance implementation of it using Marmalade. But but it was an absolutely a risk. So what are we doing today? We're banking on Unity and Unreal. Like we have two teams. One is going all in on Unreal. It's here to stay. One's going in on Unity. It's here to stay. We're doubling down on what we're good at, which is game design, building a product. So a lot of pro companies just fail to ever ship a product. That's not us. We've shipped a lot of products, right? We, we've run live services games. Hidden Express, which I haven't talked about, a little hidden object game we did, peaked at 330,000 daily players. Still wow. has 8,000 players today. We keep it alive just because that little community is just such a wonderful group of people who love the game. It's not core to what we do anymore, but, but we, really, we really appreciate that community and, and the, the, they've been with us for so long. Is, is so, there a community that you've built around Eternium? Is there a Discord? Is there uh, kind yeah, of taking... Yeah, thanks for, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, so if you go to yeah. eterniumgame.com or just makingfun.com, you can find the Eternium stuff. And we the community is really centered more, mostly on the forums in terms of just the depth of knowledge that people have poured into the forums. Uh, and those are accessible without registering, but you can you have to register, I think, to to comment. And then Discord, of course, as well is available. And that's more of a chat about what's going on right now. New players can can ask for help, be helped out. We do a lot of our customer support, um, making fun. Like part of what's made us a great company is when you contact us, we respond. We really care about our players. And so one of the things that drives us nuts, for example, about Apple, is we can't interact with our players. Right? Someone contacts us on Android, we can give them a refund. I can't do that on Apple. I can just say you got to talk to Apple, right? I, I literally can't do it. Um, you have a whole intermediary you have to deal with. Yeah. yeah. So we. So, but when you kind of back to the question you asked, is we're focusing on what we're really good at: developing that user experience, this great game, a fair, generous economy where literally people will say, "This game is so great. It's so generous. You don't have to spend any money," which is why I've spent so much money in it. Like people, some people literally just to support us. Or more generally, there's a trade-off between time and money. That's kind of the common, one of the common free-to-play game design techniques is you can grind for it. And I think with Eternium, I mean, because you can 
earn gems by grinding, you can literally buy anything in the game just by time and not, literally not having to spend any money. But if you want to not spend a ton of time, you can spend some money. And that's kind of a cool trade-off, right? Um, so we're focusing on that. We're, we're de-risking technology. And then with blockchain, we're kind of, we've been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, but we haven't launched yet because we're really waiting for these pieces to come together and for it to become more obvious that we're not choosing another marmalade, <laughs> right? <laughs> So Eternium 2.0 or, or making fun right now, um, where are you guys at? Are, are, are you, do you guys have any open objectives? Uh, what's Yeah, kind of so I should have mentioned, you know, it's a great time in this podcast, like, you know, 90% of the way through it to say we're actually raising a round. <laughs> no, but it's a private round, so we can't really solicit. So we're not soliciting for investors at this point. Um, but we're going to close that down fairly soon. Um, and we're going to switch to a crowdfunding mode, which is we're really excited about. Um, you know, we're going to work with the folks over at WeFunder who, who I don't think they've worked with a company with seven and a half million players in their database that we can email and say, hey, come on over and own a piece of the company that you're, you've been playing our games for so long. So we're really excited to, uh, and, and they told me a story. They said, you know, raising money, private money from venture capitalists, which is the worst, or you know, even private angels like we've been raising from, it's like, it's like, no, 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 maybe, no, 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 okay. No, no. And like, it's like constant no's and getting punched in the face. They said, you go over to crowdfunding and it's like, yes, 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 yes. And it's super, so I can't wait to get to that phase because we've built so much of our reputation and our careers on interacting with our players. And so to be able to invite them in and own a piece of the company through a platform like WeFunder uh, is, is super exciting. And that's just, it's like, it's with the whole spirit of Web3, come in and own a piece of what you're spending your time on. I love that. I love that. I mean, pure collaboration, pure you know, incentivization yeah. for for really the the individuals that are driving the business uh, yeah. revenue, right? And, and, and if I could do it today, if I could create a DAO, I almost did it. I almost pulled the, the trigger on creating an offshore DAO with a bank account at a bank that I think failed a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> you know, literally put the IP inside of a DAO, tokenize it, sell the tokens. But it was just the legal and compliance risk that kept us from doing that. Spiritually, like what I I love that model. The idea that people should own a piece of what they're doing. And, and if you're a player of the game, support the game because you own it. So we'll do it in kind of the classic sense that's 100% legal in the U.S., equity crowdfunding, Reg CF. <laughs> the SEC has no problem with that. I, I, I truly believe, you know, especially as communities become natural bolt-ons to uh, marquee games, you know, take Eternium, for example, if your Discord grows to, you know, 50,000 humans or what have, if you can even capture 5% of your player base within your Discord community that, you know, it's full engagement and it's not bots, like maybe 90% of Web3 communities today, you know, you have potential and you now wrap that around a DAO that is you are actually having the community make recommendations and user improvements and gaming improvements to the game itself. And now they are incentivized to do that. That yeah, is, a, that we, is so we've been doing exactly that for years, just without the DAO, right? Right. Yeah. But now you can go on our Discord with, and you'll see it. Smart contracts and you imagine manage thresholds and automatic fulfillment. And that's the beauty, right? That's yeah. that's a that's a that's a a future blue state, so to speak. So yeah. um we're coming up here on time. Uh, and I would like to end this call with maybe uh, a, a personal nugget from yourself, like maybe a piece of alpha, you know, that maybe uh, uh, listeners and, and viewers won't get from anywhere else. But if you had one piece of alpha from a gaming perspective, what would it be in terms of 
you know, uh, a unique perspective that you think is going to blow up, uh, uh, a company that is doing great things that no one has heard of, et cetera, et cetera. I'll give a couple of plugs. I mentioned Capital Dow. I think they're really cool. I think um, uh, Wildcard Alliance is really pretty cool, what they're doing over there. I, I, I can't wait to see what real game developers can release when they bring Web3 into their ecosystem. Shrapnel is a cool looking game. So check that out. So those are some of the games that are on my radar. Um, I think the future of Web3 gaming and the future of free-to-play gaming come together, right? They are each other's, one is a solution or a potential solution for the other. Free-to-play is here to stay. It's flawed. Blockchain technologies allow us to fix it. Let's get game designers working, spending most of their time creating the fun for players to own and and value and treasure and retain and share and and create marketing within our own community rather than advertising being the solution for for how we bring players in and share what we love. Um, so I think that it's going to take time, but it's going to the true success are going to successes are going to come from companies that have the players' best interests in mind and can implement the right aspects of what people have been excited with Web3 about. And with gaming, for me, it's not so much decentralization, but it is permissionless, right? It's not floating value tokens and speculation, but it is being able to have a currency that you can cash value out of. It's not evading the law it's doing this within the constraints of reasonable regulation. And, and our government needs to kind of get its head out of its ass also and, and, and figure <laughs> out how to regulate this stuff properly and not you know, have one tool in their toolbox, right? The SEC seems to have a hammer in a toolbox and that's it. But, um, but when we figure this out, we're gonna uncork a, 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 an amazing future of that we can't even dream about today. Man, I love that. I, I love... If we could get to a point where the gamers and the consumers can capitalize on the sweat equity into the platforms and the uh, the, the major gaming brands that they've devoted hours and you know years to, mm -hmm. and actually return that to where it could improve you know their own uh, fiscal um, you know status or, or a fiscal standing. I mean, outside of just monetizing via ads right now as a streamer or or potential sponsorships. I mean that is. That is a true creator economy, yeah. right? Think, think about ownership, right? Think about people that collect and own things like the Magic the Gathering cards. Yeah, you can sell those physical cards, but who does? I mean, there's yeah, people do. There's an economy around that. But part of the beauty of having things that you own and can sell is that you can also collect and keep them and keep them forever. Hey, I mean, th those are milestones, right? You know, if if I was collecting Pokemon cards and I wanted a first edition Charizard and I've been collecting and I finally come yeah. across and that's one goal to cl to close out my my collection and call it complete, yeah. it would be very hard to sell that. Imagine if I did that with a digital asset within a game. Right? So here's the here's here's the alpha then for you is something around soulbound tokens and identities. Because that's where you can really build value. Sometimes the value you build isn't just something you want to get rid of. It's something you want to provably retain. And what becomes super valuable is your reputation. You're not going to want to trade that away or sell it when it's your reputation. 
right? And so I think that there's some interesting things that we'll be that we're looking at that really involve how you can evolve your identity. You could still be anonymous, but you have an identity that's done certain things, and you might want to hold on to that. And then there's things you earn which you might want to sell. But the, but when you think about an achievement system that's based on tokens, some of which might be sold out. Um, and then you start thinking about how developers can work together across games, not because I want my sword to work in your game or your horse to work in my, you know, my game, but because your player with an identity can come over here and do something, gain reputation and show mastery across different domains. Like, that, like we, we've only begun to scratch the surface of that kind of thing. And, it, and it's kind of also maybe the scary side is you can do it in a permissionless kind of setting, right? You don't need to work together with the other developer. You can just say, hey, you show up with a wallet with certain, something in it, and I'm going to give you something based on that. So there's a lot of, you know, we'll see how it works out, but there'll be a lot of innovation. Some it. of it good, some of it not good. <laughs> well, hey, John, I want to thank you again for being a guest on on, on this episode. Uh, and, you know, thank you for being a, a valued community member. Um, John Welch, CEO of, of Making Fun. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, you know, go out and check out Eternium and uh, where can they go and, uh, you know, get, go and play the game or go and play some of Making Fun's games? We'll, yeah, we'll, so makingfun.com is our website and uh, from any app store, go search for uh, Making Fun or Eternium or just RPG and you'll probably see Eternium show up. It, it, it's pretty high in the search rankings. Great, great SEO strategy, right? Yeah. Well, being <laughs> the first, good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. I think that wraps up this episode here. All right. Thank you so much. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show and your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.